home. It's a simple word, yet its significance extends beyond just four walls. Home is where happiness resides and love. Eso es. Home is where your family is. Etched in those walls are our memories. Moments of joy, laughter and love, despair, anger and heartbreak. Home is a little bit you, a little bit me, something we've built together. Home is love. Home is life. Home is music. Home is that aroma that fills the air, that feeling of comfort, of belonging, of safety. Home is where I can live a real life. A life with freedom and with Love. Home is what our hearts long for, but it's what millions of people every year have no choice but to leave behind. Memory is all that we have right now of home. This is Forced to Flee, a podcast from UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I'm Anita Rani. Episode 2 Seeking Shelter. There are in Europe about 200 of those ghastly places called refugee camps, and I feel sure that if you would see the mud and the dirt and, and uh, the gloom of those places, Everybody would feel in the same hurry as I do to close them down altogether. That was Gerrit Jan van Hoven Goodhart, the first UN High Commissioner for Refugees. That clip is from a UN broadcast in the 1950s. Those post-Second World War camps are now long gone. But seven decades on, as we mark the anniversary of UNHCR, camps are still very much a reality. How they're built, though, and where refugees live has changed because those displaced are now out of their homes for much longer. The fast response is to provide something that's very short term, but displacement, you know, the average lifespan of a camp, a settlement, we're talking 20 years. So my name is Phoebe Goodwin and I'm an Australian architect working with UNHCR. So when you design a shelter, you, it's not just a roof over your head. These spaces need to be designed to actually provide healthy living conditions. So what's it like to live in a camp? In this episode, we'll take you to Cox's Bazaar. We'll hear from a Rohingya woman forced not once, but twice to flee her home. From there, we'll travel west to take a walk down the Champs-Élysées, where you can get a fancy gown. But we're not talking about the famous street in Paris. Finally, we'll go to a city in southern Colombia because today, most refugees live in urban areas. First, though, to the world's largest refugee camp. Part one, Bangladesh. Walking down a mud road in Kutupalong refugee camp, there's activity at every turn. Children playfully running along a bamboo bridge. Water surging from hand pumps, splashing into the waiting jugs below. 
as a group nearby scrubs the dirt off a pile of clothes. Everyday life continues its rhythm at this densely crowded camp for Rohingya refugees. Suddenly you're seeing, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people coming on a daily basis. My name's Vivian Tan. I'm currently the acting representative for UNHCR in China. I was in Bangladesh in late September 2017. That was the last exodus of Rohingya refugees into Bangladesh from Myanmar. Those are really dramatic days. August 2017. Facing unimaginable violence, Rohingya flee Myanmar during a brutal military crackdown. The type of violence that these people have gone through is really exceptional, is really extraordinary. High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi. His predecessor and current UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. The situation has spiraled into the world's fastest developing refugee emergency and a humanitarian and human rights nightmare. This is not the first mass exodus. The Muslim minority have been persecuted for years. This time, more than 700,000 cross into neighboring Bangladesh. Can anyone rule out that elements of genocide may be present? UN High Commissioner for Human Rights at the time, Zaid Rad Al Hussein. We cannot afford to hear that historical and tragic refrain one more time that no one knew it would turn out to be like this. What a lie that would be. I remember seeing boats coming in, uh, rickety boats, some really small, some rafts, large numbers of, you know, women, children carrying things, exhausted, collapsing on the beach. And then on the other side of Cox's Bazaar, we were seeing people, you know, who had come on foot, even larger in numbers. My hometown is in Myanmar. We had our own home there, we had our land where we used to do uh, farming and we had our own kettles and uh, our children used to go to the schools and it was quite a regular life. Among those forced to flee, Hazra Khatun, sitting outside her shelter, a yellow shawl draped over her head and shoulders. You can't tell from her soulful eyes or her subtle smile that she's endured so much hardship. She was 50 years old when she fled along with her husband, her nine children, their spouses, and her 17 grandchildren. So we came without anything. We didn't have the time to gather our things. We were too afraid. We mostly starved ourselves because we didn't have enough food. And while walking, we were seeing dead bodies, injured bodies uh, laying here and there. And it took us six to seven days and nights to reach Bangladesh. We couldn't walk the straight ways. We had to cross the hills. We had to cross the river. We had to walk the most difficult ways possible to hide herself. It was such a struggle if I look back. As more and more refugees arrived in the camp, makeshift shelters started to appear all along the rolling hills of Cox's Bazaar, an area prone to monsoons, flash flooding and landslides. 
the government of Bangladesh soon granted more land and the camp expanded. When we first started, actually there were only two established camps and the rest was jungle. I'm Sarah Jabin. I'm working for UNHCR in Bangladesh. Back then, unimaginable what we have today. It's almost like a jungle turning into a full-grown city in three to four years' time. In Cox's Bazaar, I was there at the peak of the influx in October 2017. The shelters were very small, on average maybe three by two metres, and the structures would be made out of bamboo poles mostly, sometimes wooden sticks, and clad in plastic sheeting. The shelters are very low, like the very low ceilings, so often you have to bend down. You get a sense when you go into the depths of the settlement that it's, it's very densely occupied. Close to 900,000 refugees are in Cox's Bazaar. Hazra lives with her husband and two youngest children. Her other children are married and live nearby. Her shelter is located next to a busy walkway. It consists of two sparsely furnished rooms. They all sleep on floor mats, on mud floors. There's no running water or toilets. Instead, she uses a hand pump located nearby to fill up jugs, and there are shared washrooms in the community. As for food, she used to cook over flames using firewood. Now she has a small burner connected to a gas cylinder. But what she eats depends on what's available. Refugees in the camp are not allowed to work. They rely on humanitarian assistance and food rations. Without money, without earning, we cannot buy things that we need, food that we want to eat. We cannot buy medicines, we cannot buy anything that we need in times of emergency. Hazra's two youngest children are both under 14. They sell tea by the side of the road to make money. Neither is in school. There's no formal education program in the camp. Last year, a pilot project was supposed to begin using Myanmar's curriculum, allowing refugees to integrate back into that country's education system if or when they return. But the project is on hold because of COVID. I'm very worried about my children's education. I'm worried about our citizenship and our children's and our community to be settled in their own home. Most Rohingya are stateless. The ethnic group is described as the world's most persecuted minority. Myanmar's government strips nearly all Rohingya of their citizenship, claiming they are illegal immigrants, though most Rohingya have lived in Myanmar for generations. I was married and I was born in Myanmar. My children were born in Myanmar and most of my life was spent in Myanmar. So when they started calling us Bengali, it broke our heart. It hurt us very much. This isn't the first time Hazra was forced to leave her home. Her family also fled in 1992. She wants to go back again, but she knows based on her past experience, it's not safe. If we find peace there, we have all our possessions back. If they give us our citizenship and they do not do any more violence on us, I would really love to go back. 
That desire for sustainable peace, it's what you'll hear from many in the camp. Vivian recalls a couple she met back in 2017. The husband said he was almost 100 years old. It was his fourth time fleeing to Bangladesh. So understandably, they were very exhausted. I mean, a whole life as refugees. So we were asking him, what, what do you need? And he said, I need peace. We need peace so that we can just settle somewhere for good instead of being on, on the move all the time. For Sarah, it's the resilience of those she meets that stays with her. She still remembers speaking to a Rohingya woman who was rescued at sea. Her husband, mother, and sister died when the boat sank. All of her other family members were killed in Myanmar. I felt the pain. Immediately when she saw that my eyes were becoming very gloomy, she said, don't be so sorry. I'm really thankful to God that I have everything that I have right now. I don't think about my loss, but I think what I can gain in future and what I have right now. And I'm grateful for that. From employment and education to overcrowding and extreme weather, there are many daily challenges for refugees as they seek to rebuild their lives. At our next stop, we'll see how one camp is helping with just that. Part two, Jordan. Feet buried in ankle deep sand, hands raised to their chest, Rows of young Syrians practice kicking as high as they can. In another part of Zatari camp, on a dirt pitch, a group of girls run after a gold-colored football. Taekwondo and football, just some of the programs offered in Zatari, a camp that started off like any other, but now looks more like an informal city. Located in the desert, not far from the Syrian border, Zatari is a sprawling refugee camp in Jordan. Close to 80,000 refugees live there. The camp was established in 2012, a year after the crisis started in Syria. I'm gravely concerned about the human rights and humanitarian crises that the country is facing. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights at the time, Navi Pillay, speaking in 2011. As the conflict escalates inside Syria, millions start to flee. The people of Syria want peace and hope. Yet all they see is death upon death. All they hear is a talk after talks. People are dying, families are fleeing. That was then Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. A decade on, more than six million people are displaced inside Syria. More than six million others were forced to leave the country. The majority are living in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. The camp are located here in Mafraq, which is known as a desert. It is very harsh weather here. My name is Mohammed Al-Tahir. I am the external relation officer working with UNSCR, Mafraq sub-office, and Zaatari camp. Zatari was once a row of white tents as far as the eye could see, but they provided little comfort from the desert sand and heat. 
uh, starting from 2014, 2015, we start moving the refugees to live inside the prefabricated houses. We name it as a caravan. Well, I mean, Zatri is incredibly unique and... Phoebe Goodwin, the Australian architect who's been a site planner at refugee camps all over the world, worked in Zatari before going to Bangladesh. The white prefab containers are small, about the length of two average size cars. They're similar to what's used for an office space on a construction site. Families were given more than one container to create a place to live. One thing that is really amazing about Zatari is that what these Syrian families did was they adapted and modified their containers to basically create a sense of home and to express their own individual creative identities. People have created gardens, furniture out of, you know, parts of the prefabs or other, you know, discarded materials. And no two prefab containers really look the same anymore. Unlike in Kutupalong, the Jordanian government allows refugees in Zatari to work. Some have jobs outside the camp in manufacturing, construction and agriculture. Those inside the camp can volunteer with various NGOs or work in one of the shops. The refugees established the informal market street and they name it as the Champs-Élysées. Perhaps this is what you think of when you hear Champs-Élysées. Luxury shops, French cafes, and a glorious view of the Arc de Triomphe. But if you're in Zatari, the Champs-Élysées is actually a bustling market strip that I visited in 2016 to make a series for the BBC. You can buy food, electronics, get your bicycle fixed, and even pick up a wedding dress. People here in the camp would prefer for wedding dresses to be more in glitter and with a long tail for that dress. They do not prefer the long sleeve dresses. They would rather prefer the short and the cut dresses. Miriam's wedding shop is brightly lit with pink walls, a makeup and tiara counter, and rows of billowy sequin dresses. Mostly white, but other colours are available too. It's a one-stop shop for brides-to-be. I am so connected with uh, to the shop. It's so precious to me. It means a lot, as it's also the main source of income to my family. Miriam is originally from Homs. She was 18 years old and studying to work as a beautician when, in 2013, she was forced to flee with her family. When we first came to the camp, it was really a tragic situation and it was really hot and really cold, but things are getting better. For so many business owners around the world, the last year was a challenge. Miriam was forced to close because of the pandemic. Her store is now reopened and business is picking up. She hopes in the next few years to expand her shop and add even more dresses. I think it's a beautiful idea that a woman can uh, open her own shop and uh, to be able to uh, run it. And uh, this uh, leads to the idea that uh, we are equal nowadays uh, as men and women. I didn't expect to find a wedding dress shop when I visited Zatari. It was a reminder that for those forced to flee, life has to go on. When I was there, I was lucky enough to be invited to a wedding. 
The night before, I was with the bride. We were having a giggle while she was having her henna applied. I asked her if this was what her wedding would have been like if she was back in Syria. Her response was instant. The smile left her face. She looked at me and said no. If she was in Syria, she'd be studying to become a doctor. For me, it was a stark reminder of how people's lives had changed overnight. Yes, life goes on in camp, but for many, it's not the life they dreamed of, nor the life they want. It's the same for Sumi. His education was also interrupted. Hello, uh, my name is uh, Samih. Uh, I'm from uh, Save the Children's Health uh, team. And I'm here today to ask you if you have taken the COVID-19 vaccine. Today, Sumi is going door to door, answering questions and trying to get people to sign up to take a COVID-19 vaccine. Zatari was the first refugee camp in the world to open a vaccination clinic like this. I'm working to help people to save lives. Now it's, uh, it's a matter of life or death uh, and in regards of health. So yeah, everything has changed uh, since COVID. Sami is originally from Dara. His parents fled Syria first. They lived outside the camp, but then decided to move to Zatari. He arrived in 2013. A lot has changed uh, since we first arrived to the camp, from the infrastructure, electricity, water networks, sewage networks, etc., etc. The situation has gotten better. While most aspects of life have improved, Sumi still faces a major hurdle. Before he fled, he was studying political science. He wants to go back to university, but he can't. I tried to look for a scholarship, but there was no scholarships available. Sumi is now 30. He says at his age, it's difficult to get a scholarship. He was able to secure a laptop from UNICEF, and he's now taking online courses in business administration. But he's not sure if employers or other schools will recognize those courses. That uncertainty and the ongoing conflict in Syria makes it difficult, Sumi says, to plan for his future. I actually don't know, like, things are vague, it's, it's unclear at all. We don't know if the Syrian crisis would end. It might end, we might go back, we might immigrate to a different country. So I don't know actually about the future, but I also hope that I can receive a scholarship to continue my studies. It's not only his own education that concerns Sumi. He got married in the camp and now has a son. My son is three and a half years old, and I hope that he gets to have a better life than the one that I had. And I hope that this phase goes as soon as possible. And I also hope that he gets a proper education, not like what happened to me. Back on Champs-Élysées, you'll hear a similar message from Abu Mahanab. He runs a bakery and is up early today to prepare his dough. I prepare uh, Arabian uh, bread, kind of bread, and we all do it uh, manually. We don't use any kind of machinery or electricity to make it. Abu Mahanid and his family arrived in Zatari nine years ago. In Syria, he was a butcher. But when we came here nine years ago, we had to learn uh, how to make bakery because of the conditions. And I taught also my children how to do it. Abu Mohanid has four children. His oldest is 26, and his youngest is just nine years old. While there are schools in Zatari, his children are not studying. 
He says one by one they were forced to drop out to find jobs. They work to help pay for their mum's medicine. She has permanent severe neck pain. I look for a better future for my children because uh, the future is unknown, it's disastrous. Because look at like my children, they are withdrawing from school just to look for work and job. So this makes their future unknown and anonymous. So if you want, just take my children to a new, uh, resettle them to a new country. And I, it's okay for me, I can go back uh, home, Syria. But what's important for me right now is my children and my children's uh, future. While a lot has changed in Zatari over the years to try and include refugees, it's clear many challenges remain. Even the prefab homes are not a long-term solution. They were only designed to last five years. The problem with these prefabs is that, you know, they've really begun to deteriorate effectively. They're not well suited to the climate. I mean, some of them have insulated panels as the wall pieces, but overall, indeed, they become freezing in winter. And then, yes, in summer, they can be incredibly hot. The goal over the coming years is continue to work with the Jordanian government to integrate the camp into the local community. And we support this living together in peacefully between the refugees and the local community. Around the world, you'll find different ways camps have evolved. In some cases, they've had to change, given the protracted nature of some conflicts. Pakistan has hosted Afghan refugees for more than four decades now, but many refugee villages, as they're called, are indistinguishable from local villages. It's similar in Uganda. Refugees there live in what are called settlements. And unlike many other countries, Uganda has a policy where as soon as refugees arrive, they're allocated a plot of land and they have the ability to cultivate it. So to begin livelihood activities from day one, refugees indeed can start growing, you know, crops on their land and then, you know, obviously like to provide for their family, but, you know, they can sell the surplus, etc., etc. It's quite a positive program. Another change over time. A majority of refugees now live outside camps or settlements. They live in urban, peri-urban or rural areas. And in many cases, refugees end up living in precarious, crowded or unhygienic conditions. Finding shelter among the local communities that host refugees is where we go next. Part three, Colombia. The room we are living in right now is three meters by two meters. It's small, but we have a bathroom inside. I mean, we live in peace because we have a place to sleep. This is what truly matters for Angel Jeppes, not the size of the room, but that he has one. For weeks, his family of three didn't have a place to rest in Colombia. They were often forced to sleep in fields, on the street, even a cemetery. The room is small, but I feel calm because I have my stuff. It's mine. No one tells me what to do and what not to do. It was a loss of that freedom that forced Amber Caraco to leave Venezuela. Her husband and two-year-old son used to live in a city not far from Caracas. In Venezuela, I was a welder. I earned a dollar a month. It was enough to buy flour or bread. 
but not butter, or I bought butter but not cheese, it was never enough. I had to keep working even on my days off. I was pregnant, but it was difficult to get an ultrasound or a pregnancy test. I was almost four months when I got the test. Everything was like in a fog. It was too much. There was too much crime in Venezuela. Essential institutions and the rule of law in Venezuela have been eroded. The exercise of freedom of opinion, expression, association and assembly, and the right to participate in public life, entails a risk of reprisals and repression. UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet. Political instability, violence, insecurity, the lack of food and medicine, they've all forced more than 5.6 million Venezuelans to leave the country. Almost a third, more than 1.7 million, are now in Colombia. High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, visited the country in February. Here, in this uh, municipality of Maikau, the mayor of Maikau just told me that one person in three, one person in four, is now a Venezuelan refugee or migrant. This is to give the a sense of the enormous proportion of people that have arrived across the border from Venezuela. It was hard to leave our mothers there. My mother-in-law only found out when we were already in Colombia. I didn't tell her because she wouldn't have let us leave. My mom knew, but my sister didn't. It was hard. When I talk about it, I feel like crying because I left my family behind. In January of this year, with just a few clothes and belongings, Amber and Angel said goodbye to their home. They walked, took a bus, or trusted strangers for a ride as they traveled 800 kilometers across Venezuela. After they crossed the border into Colombia, they stayed with a friend. Three days later, they set off for the south. That's Angel declaring this was the walk of the year. He's on the side of the road, his son perched on his shoulders. Amber adds, after this, she won't walk anymore. But this was just the beginning of their journey, a journey that by the end would total 1,200 kilometers. There's nothing scarier than walking down a highway. Along the way, they were given supplies by the Red Cross. They would walk from morning to night. The soles of my shoes were full of holes. They were useless for walking. My shoulder and my neck hurt from carrying my son in the heavy box. When it came time to rest, though, to take some weight off their feet and recover, they didn't have many options. We slept in the cemetery, outside of a church. Another time, my wife slept in a shelter while I slept outside on a field. It was so cold. It felt like my bones were going to shatter. There was a parking lot, but the owner didn't let Venezuelans stay because earlier a group of Venezuelans had stolen from him. And the men threatened us by firing a few shots, and we were scared. I grabbed my son and ran until we got to a gas station. We stayed there until the next day. We couldn't walk anymore. I had a terrible back pain. 
I wanted to cry because the pain was so strong. Amber was, after all, four months pregnant at the time. Even before she set out on the arduous journey, she knew something felt different compared to her first pregnancy. She just assumed she was having a girl this time. My biggest fear was that I had to climb into trucks as I was running. More than once, I had to run out and jump. And it was dangerous as a pregnant woman to jump and perhaps fall badly. You could injure yourself or lose your baby. I just thought, grab God's hand and go. In spite of everything, I said I couldn't. But then I said, yes, I can. Yes, I can. I made it. But it was tough. It is not easy to walk while being heavily pregnant. Her children and finding a safe place for them to live is what kept her going. It took Amber and Angel 22 days from the first step out of their home in Venezuela to reach the southern Colombian city of Macoa. They were initially taken in by a friend who used to live near them in Venezuela. Then Angel heard about a room available for rent. Pero... Since I've been here, I've slept on the street, we have been cold, we walked, but thanks God and everyone who helped us, we are here in this place and I feel good in this country. Earlier this year, Colombia announced it was offering Venezuelans in the country temporary protection for a decade. That means they can legally work and access services, including healthcare. Shortly after arriving in Macoa, Amber was finally able to have her first ultrasound. I told the doctor I was so excited to see my little girl. And she said, are you sure, ma'am? And the doctor said, there are two boys. I said, doctor, don't play with me like that. Don't joke with me. And she says, look at my face. Does it look like I'm joking? Christ, it was the only thing I could say. I came out cold. It was too much. I was in shock. I couldn't walk. That wasn't the only shock for Amber and Angel. Their landlord told them he didn't want more children in the house. Soon, we have to move out because my wife is about to give birth. So I have to find somewhere else to go. I'd like a permanent home, not renting and being told that I'm getting evicted. I just want to be somewhere where I can say, I'm staying here. This was my goal when I came here. Be stable, feel calm, being my own home. Something I created, that we created together. A few weeks after our interview, Amber gave birth to two healthy baby boys. The family is still in the same room. They weren't able to find another place to rent, so the landlord is letting them stay for now. Angel is hoping to find a place and have stability soon. Right now, he's getting support from UNHCR, cash to help pay for rent and expenses. He's also selling empanadas on the street, but he wants to work full time. My dream is to have a fast food business so that in a few years time and my kids can say our dad left us this. securing a future for their children. It's a theme you'll hear repeatedly, no matter where those displaced live. Here's Mariam, the beauty shop owner we met in Zattery. 
أول شيء ابني اسمه يامن. I have a baby boy Yaman. He is nine years old. He is in the second grade, and um, uh, he is now learning online. I hope uh, for Yemen to um, to grow up and to be an engineer and to uh, graduate and to uh, improve his future and to find his future. But Maryam doesn't think her son can accomplish that goal if he stays in the camp. Worldwide, just 5% of refugees manage to continue studying past secondary school. Access to education remains a major barrier for displaced children. In our next episode, we meet two refugees who fled as kids. They struggled to get an education, but are now trying to make sure other children don't face the same obstacles. They want to ensure young refugees can forge their own futures. I feel like uh, if uh, refugees are given more spaces in terms of more classrooms, more books, knowledge is the greatest element that you can ever give to a refugee because they develop themselves from that. They know the problems that they face or what made them flee. And so they would be in a better chance of correcting that and being able to go uh, and dig into that knowledge that will correct the, the wrongs that were done in their countries. Forced to Flee is produced, written, and mixed by me, Vakas Chuktai. Our editor is Shirley Kamia. Additional production support and voiceovers in this episode by Ifat Yasmin, Pablo Amos, Lily Carlisle, Farah Al-Sadi, Yusuf Taha, Tasneem Al-Nabursi, Jenny Barchfield, Jaime Nicolas Morales, Lady Rapido, and freelance journalist Marielmel Lafori. Special thanks to UNHCR's bureaus in the Americas and Middle East and North Africa, and teams in Bangladesh, Jordan, and Colombia. Visual design, marketing, and social media by Red Havas. Our executive producer is Barney Thompson, and our host is UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador Anita Rani. To learn more about the UN Refugee Agency, visit unhcr.org slash forced to flee podcast.